This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. On this special edition of Bloomberg Best, on the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore. Sergio Armati, CEO of UBS, eyes trouble spots in the global economy. Things that can really go wrong, they usually come from government or real estate. Citadel founder and CEO Ken Griffin says inflation is going to be with us for a lot longer than you think. Deglobalization. With that is almost certainly a trend towards higher baseline inflation. And what will it take for peace between Israel and Hamas? We asked former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. There needs to be new leadership of the Israelis and the Palestinians. Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg's Best Stories of the Week. Powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. All right, uh, just a lot going on economically and politically in the U.S. and across the globe, really, right now. Yeah, for sure it is. And the concern was definitely reflected in the guest comments at this year's New Economy Forum. It sure was. And at this year's theme, we should mention, was embracing instability. And among the many esteemed voices we heard from, Ken Griffin, founder and CEO of Citadel. And Griffin told our Eric Schatzker, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy, it's a new world out there and we need to make a lot of adjustments. Let's listen in. Regretfully, the the peace dividend is clearly at the end of the road. No matter what one may dream to be reality, reality is, is there's two wars in the world right here, right now, one of which is in Europe. So there's, there's no doubt that the NATO countries are going to have to increase defense budgets over the years ahead. That's going to come at a point in time where governments around the world are already struggling with the sizes of their deficits. And then when it comes to globalization, I mean, we're in Singapore. We are at one of the global nexus in the world of trade, of finance. Many of us in this room have been tremendous beneficiaries of globalization. And it hasn't been great for everybody, to be clear. But for the world as a whole, it's pulled a billion people out of poverty. But now we're talking about deglobalization. We're talking about re-architecting supply chains. And some of this is rooted in the behavior that we saw in the pandemic. We saw countries hoarding personal safety equipment. We saw the tension around the distribution of vaccines around the world. Countries are much more sensitive to what do we want to have created domestically so that we're not reliant upon global trade. And then take that into the general geopolitical trends right here, right now. The war in the Ukraine has resulted in Europe losing access to natural gas from Russia for all intents and purposes. Europe struggling to deal with how does it maintain its economy having lost its cheap source of energy. So there's many trends at play right now that are pushing us towards deglobalization. And with that is almost certainly a trend towards higher baseline inflation. For, over what period? It could be for decades. And the implications of higher inflation might be obvious to some, but I think we'd all like to hear it from Ken Griffin. Well, it depends on, on where this, this baseline effect lands. If we're, if we're looking at, at a 2 or 3% baseline effect, in some sense, the central bank will have a much easier job in the United States. The struggle over the last 20 years has actually been to hit a 2% target. And there's, there's a variety of reasons that you want a low level of background inflation. It just, it helps to lubricate the wheels of commerce. 
and that number the Fed has committed to is being 2%, they're going to fight pretty hard to keep that as the target for a litany of good reasons. But it also means that we're likely to see higher real rates, and we're likely to see higher nominal rates, and that will have a real implication on the cost of funding our enormous deficit. The U.S. has $33 trillion of debt outstanding. We didn't plan for an era with higher nominal and higher real rates when we went on the spending spree that created a $33 trillion deficit. You have been warning about the unsustainability of U.S. debt, and America, to be clear, is not the only developed country that has a heavy debt load for, for quite a long time. I, you would know better when you started to talk about this than I do. But up to now, Ken, it appears that nobody in the U.S. government, at the very least, Republican or Democrat, has taken those warnings to heart. And when I say nobody, of course, there are other people in government who say the same things, but the government itself hasn't done anything about it. Is this moment in time when we've seen 10-year Treasury yields hit 5%, they've backed off slightly, but in that neighborhood, is this the moment when everybody wakes up to the, the as you would put it, unsustainable realities of, of, of deficits and debt? So first of all, I think there's an awakening taking place, but it's going to take time. It's going to take time. And nothing like mortgages at 7% and 8% to push the body politic to start to wake up to the consequences of the scale of the deficit we're currently running. You know, there's no doubt that a big part of the move in the tenure this year has been driven by the realization we're in a full growth economy, full employment economy, and we're going to run almost a $2 trillion deficit this year. Like in some sense, you're supposed to save in this moment in time for the rainy day, and yet we're spending at the government level like a drunken sailor. And the challenge with this is, is actually a variety of different challenges. Number one is, when you're spending too much on your credit card, like you feel really good in the here and now, but in the back of your mind, there's that gnawing feeling that this isn't going to end well. And I think that's part of why the American consumer is, is just not as happy as you'd expect them to be. They're seeing the impact of inflation. They're seeing the impact of a dysfunctional set of regulatory policies. And they know in the back of their mind that we can't sustain this level of government spending. Like the amount of economic malaise right now in America relative to where unemployment is, almost 10 million open jobs, is a stunning phenomenon. And I think the American people just understand deep down that something's not quite right. Do you think the risk-free status of Treasury debt, is it all in question? Well, one thing to remember is that the United States has the ability to always print dollars. Europe does not. So in the European Union, you just can't print euros as a member country. That's why Greece had its back against the wall. They just couldn't print euros. That forced a restructuring to take place. Now, to be clear, the minute we start to print dollars to, to deal with the possibility of default, our economy is in a deep tailspin. So it's, it's a theoretical possibility that we can go there, but the economic consequences would be devastating. Big picture, though, there's no IMF for America. If the United States came off the rails with respect to its debt and its ability to service its debt, the effect on the global economy, not just the U.S. economy, would be stunning. 
There is no IMF for America. The consensus so far among your fellow speakers is that the world is unstable, that power, the distribution of global power hasn't been this diffuse since the turn of the 20th century, and because of that, the risks to the global economy are as great as they've been in decades. Do you agree? Well, actually, I'm going to go back to the last point for just a moment. Mm -hmm. Talking about the deficit in America is something every business leader should do. If we're going so, in other words, while we're all talking about geopolitics, we should be talking about the deficit. We should. We should. We need to put America's fiscal house in order. And until Washington hears it from enough people, we're just going to keep using the credit card until the day comes where no one's willing to pay for it. Like, if we can't have that conversation, who's going to have it? I don't want to go too far. So we can much further down that rabbit hole, but up until now, nobody's... It, what's to say that, that somebody will end up holding um, the, the Treasury Department's feet to the fire? Hasn't happened yet? So I was actually with... Or maybe number, not since I was days with, of the bond vigilantes. A number of the senior members of the House, in the top three conversations, the deficit was on every single person's lips. They're starting to get the message. They get it from the family that can't buy its first home. They're getting the message, but we need to keep pushing that message as the business community, as the financial community, to the American people, who are the American voters, who will start to demand that we put our house in order. So allow me for a moment to go back to geopolitics, because interest rate risk is something that you can predict up to a point. Uh, geopolitical risk is much harder to model. Uh, how, as arguably, the world's most successful risk manager. You have to be the world's most successful risk manager to run the world's most successful hedge fund. Do you manage geopolitical risk? Well, I wish that statement were actually true. I hate it when he attacks the premise of my question. All right, like, like, and one of the things that we spend a lot of time on is to try to be a great risk manager, but there is a real art to risk management. And unfortunately, it's not until you have the benefit of hindsight that you actually know how well you were as a risk manager, all right? So, so just first and foremost, everybody who's in the business of managing money, we're all learning to be better risk managers, but you can't take that for granted. You don't, that's not like a God-given right. Just because you've made money, you're a good risk manager. You've been listening to Ken Griffin, founder and CEO of Citadel with Eric Schatzker, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. And coming up here on this special edition of Bloomberg Best, Sergio Armadi, CEO of UBS, with his take on all the volatility. You're listening to Bloomberg Best with voices from the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore. And this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini with this special edition of Bloomberg Best from the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore. And just an absolute parade of important voices at the forum this year. Including those in the banking industry. That's right, Denise. And Sergio Armade, CEO of UBS, sat down with our Francine Lacroix. And Armadi tells Francine we could see more political and economic volatility, but he's also hopeful about more stability in our future. Check this out. 
Well, you know, everything can happen, of course. Uh, we are still missing a major escalation of the geopolitical events. Uh, but uh, having said that, if, if I look at what happened in, uh, in Ukraine, what happened, what's happening right now in the Middle East, then, you know, it's, it's quite, you know, it's, it's already quite challenging. So uh, I'm relieved that at the very least uh, the situation uh, between uh, China and the US uh, is uh, calming down. And uh, at this stage, we, we just don't need something else coming for sure. Are, are you confident actually that the US-China relationship will get better? No, I'm not confident because I'm not in control of that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but what, I'm, what, I, what I know is that uh, the world cannot afford an escalation, and, and most likely both countries cannot really afford some things to escalate in terms of economic uh, consequences. I mean, the situation in both countries is fragile, and uh, you know, I guess uh, a geopolitical escalation is not going to be in the interest of uh, both countries. What does that mean for the economy, the uncertainties in the economy and interest rates and, and how central banks view the future? Well, central banks uh, seems to also have a very little visibility about uh, what's happening. You see the uh, uh, stop-and-go um, um, approach on, on rates. Uh, I think that uh, the last round was a sensible uh, pose. But uh, having said that, uh, when I look at, um, you know, from our standpoint of view, my standpoint of view, uh, when I look at the language, I'm not so sure it's over. And I'm not so sure they really believe... Uh, uh, rates are, have peaked. Uh, I personally think that uh, I'm more in the camp of high for longer than higher for longer. Uh, but, uh, you, know, um, you know, I don't see how we can bring back inflation at target. Uh, everybody focuses very much on, on the big drop. But the truth of the matter is that inflation is well above target rates across the globe. And it's much stickier than we think. So, uh, I don't see how you can bring back inflation without creating a, an economic uh, uh, downturn. We start to, to see it now, clearly in Europe, and most possibly also in the U.S. Uh, soon. So. so, so if you have interest rates high for longer, and there's an economic downturn, what breaks? Is it is it companies defaulting? Is it commercial real estate? Are there other pockets in the market that you worry about? Look. I would say that companies, the vast majority of the companies are, are well-placed in terms of capital position. I'm not so concerned at this stage about the private sector. Uh, there are, and, and, and if, you, if you want to look at you know, major events, right, black swan events or, or things that can really go wrong, history tells us that they usually come from government or real estate. So I, I think that while we look at uh, the private sector, I think that the reality is that uh, the most fragile part of the equation, if I look at uh, uh, the real estate, commercial real estate markets uh, across the world, you know, uh, the post-COVID uh, uh, positive momentum was, was very short. So, and uh, now the reality is that we see that uh, COVID has changed the way people work. People use uh, offices and, uh, you know, we see it as we speak that... Uh, that one has to be watched carefully. But commercial real estate, I mean, we talk about it so often, and it's been telegraphed so much, that sh surely a lot of the positions are starting to be unwound, or starting to be unwound. That, I mean, if you talk about it as being a big event... Right. But, but also there is another element, because more and more, also on commer commercial real estate, if you don't have uh, um, uh, buildings that are up to the new, newest uh, 
um, uh, ESG standard or climate uh, protection standards, you, you really have a trouble to rent it, no matter at what price you want to do it. So I think that there is also a, uh, rightly so in my point of view, a push for making sure that we create a more sustainable uh, uh, kind of uh, um, you know, a landscape in terms of real estates. And so there is a double whammy. Uh, less demand, but, and, and if there is demand, is very specific on new buildings or refurbished business uh, buildings that have um, the quality standards and, and the sustainability standards necessary. So you probably have the, the hardest, actually, job in banking right now because you're, you're flying a plane whilst building a plane, right? Because you also have to, to deal with Credit Suisse. How much time do you spend on each? Well, the first 90, 100 days was at 90% on, on the integration. Right now it's coming down, but it's still very substantial. I don't expect this to change dramatically from kind of two-third, one-third. Uh, but it's true that... Uh, you know, what I need to pay attention, and, and we need to pay attention, that clients, I mean, we spoke about the macroeconomic conditions, everything that goes on, you know, we need to continue to stay close to clients. We need to run the business. There is a day-to-day -day business, there is an integration business, and as we speak, we also see a lot of changes affecting our economies and our way, uh, the way we operate as a bank, you know, the, digitalization, technology, artificial intelligence is changing the way we're going to work in the next three to five years. So the, the real challenge right now for us is not to be stuck into integrating the bank using the model we had in the last five years or we have today, but rather also thinking how it's going to be in three to five years' time. So I can't and you know, all, all of us in, in the bank cannot afford to be distracted from the clients and from a forward-looking aspect of what we need to do. Do you think client behavior is changing? Client behavior in, in respect of... Uh, Just in general, because of the fintech, because of their expectations and their relationship with their... No, at this stage, I don't see it. Uh, it's an evolution. I mean, uh, usually the expectations of, uh, of uh, in general, the market and everybody about how fast the technology really changes the business is overestimated, but the impact over the long run is underestimated. Uh, no, the only thing that I saw really changing in clients' dynamics and, and is, is really more on the asset allocation side, these higher rates have shifted the asset allocation thinking of clients in, in back to a more traditional heavy component on bonds, on, 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 on you know, basically people are saying with 6.5% six, six kind of yield, 7% even with pretty good quality, you know, do I really need to have risks, you know, and uh, that has changed. And, um, uh, but it's a reflection of both uh, risk aversion, but also the attractiveness of uh, fixed income uh, in, in, in the asset allocation. How much are you focusing on Asia? Well, Asia is still a fantastic uh, growing story for us uh, for the last 20 years. It's going to be for the next 20 to 30 years. We are in 13 countries here. Uh, only, you know, we are in Singapore today. We employ 5,000 people in, in Singapore, the two banks combined. So we are managing 650 billions of assets, clients' assets, So it's, it's, and it's growing. So uh, wealth creation is in, in this side of the world and in, in, you know, the underlying trends supporting wealth management are intact, particularly in this uh, region. So we need to continue to uh, look at ways to, 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 uh, to lever that. Uh, and uh, 
The momentum is good, although I have to say that, of course, when you come here now compared to four or five years ago, you see some convergence to what we see in Europe and, and the US in terms of uh, uh, economic developments, uh, uncertainties, and uh, coming from uh, different fronts. That was Sergio Armadi, CEO of UBS, with Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore. And coming up, former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton's take on these volatile times. That's right, in a wide-ranging sit-down with Bloomberg News Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite. And you're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 99.1. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM 121. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. With this special edition of Bloomberg Best, from the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore. And the theme this year, as we've been talking about, embracing instability. And we got to hear from many important voices about this, including former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton and her take on global politics right now. now she had some surprising things to say about the Middle East. And she also talked out about trade deals and economic statecraft. And here's former Secretary Clinton now with Bloomberg News Editor-in-Chief, John Micklethwaite. If you visit any country here, Indonesia, even Singapore, Malaysia, all these places, they will all say the same thing. What they want with America is a trade deal. Um, when they deal with China, they get a whole menu of, of economic possibilities. With, with America, they really want some kind of formal trade alliance. But that seems to have gone. Is that, are you saddened by that? Well, I am. I do think that uh, it would be uh, beneficial to the United States as well as to the countries you named and many others uh, if we could uh, define uh, trade agreements for the age in which we find ourselves. Uh, that has to take into account, particularly in the United States, uh, some of the concerns that uh, uh, citizens and businesses, workers, unions all have about whether trade agreements will really benefit them. We have to take into account with many other countries uh, what really is the openness on the other side of the agreement. Uh, how uh, willing will uh, countries be to open their markets uh, to American uh, businesses? So I think we need a new era of uh, realistic uh, trade agreements that take into account where we are in the world today, that understand we have new stresses and pressures and that can make a case, uh, particularly in you know, complicated societies like Indonesia, like the United States, that any agreement is going to benefit not just a very few large businesses, primarily multinational ones, but we'll get into medium-sized and small businesses, will benefit consumers and workers. We ought to be able to make that case. But Historically, those have not been high priorities for many trade agreements. And one of the things that happened with the TPP uh, is that it did not uh, adequately uh, explain what the benefits would be beyond uh, a very, you know, relatively small set of sectors and businesses within those sectors. 
So it's up to leaders, both government and business leaders, to make a better case. And I think we could do that, but it means adding that to the big agenda that many people are already facing. Uh, and so we have to make a special effort to try to begin once again to talk about trade agreements, but with an eye from the beginning to make the case for those trade agreements, not negotiate behind closed doors, then come out and then have people express their disappointments and opposition. I'm going to push you, rush you slightly towards the Middle East, Israel and Hamas. What you, there seem to be kind of two big theories going on about this war. One is that this is the end of the peace process. The other, which you, you champion, the other is that this is, if nothing else, this will prompt finally some move towards a two-state solution. Which, which, which side of that do you fit on? Well, I actually try to fit on both. And I'll tell you, John, <laughs> I think uh, it's important to have some... Uh, aspiration, some goal that we can look toward. Uh, many of us, uh, my husband particularly, worked very hard on trying to get a two-state solution. And it frankly, in retrospect, is heartbreaking that uh, Yasser Arafat walked away from the uh, deal that Bill had brokered between Israel and the Palestinian Authority back in uh, 2000. There could have been a Palestinian state uh, on up to 97% of the land from the 1948 division uh, that would have been in existence for 23 years now. So I think you have to create the uh, environment in which there is a chance uh, to revitalize the peace process and a potential for a two-state solution. Hamas is not interested in a two-state solution. They are dedicated to the destruction of Israel. That is in their charter if you've been watching uh, lots of different outlets over the last month, that is what the leaders of Hamas say. You know, they want to destroy Israel. So Hamas is not a partner for any kind of peace or two-state solution, but the Palestinian Authority might one time again be. New leadership uh, in Gaza might again be. Do, so do you have you to get to a point where that's possible. Very quickly, do you think that Benjamin Netanyahu is a partner for a two-state solution? I, I don't think there is any evidence of that. I think the Israeli people will have to decide uh, about his leadership. I think there will be investigations about what led up to and what happened on October the 7th. But I, I think there needs to be new leadership of the Israelis and the Palestinians uh, in order to have any chance at some kind of uh, peace deal uh, especially a two-state solution. Can I jump a little bit more optimistically towards um, Europe? Um, you've had a series of recent re results in Europe. You've had in Greece, in Poland. You've had people I suspect you would support winning. In Britain, you're heading towards election, the place which went through Brexit, Boris and Liz Truss. We now have two rather boring men, but they are, they are um, nevertheless... In the, within the general field of what people would regard as compatible, competitive, normal politics. Do you think there is a sign of politics changing at all? I certainly hope so. I want to make boring popular again. You know, I want to get back to people who get up every day and do the job. Uh, don't think that uh, they are entertainers and performers who need to be outrageous and, and get a lot of attention on social media. So I wonder who I, you're you know, referring I'm for, to. I'm for the, I'm for the boring, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, public servants and government leaders right now. <laughs> 
bring back boring. Um, on that subject, in, in your own country, there has been something of a split from the point of view of the Democrats. You have had the big success um, in terms of some of the state elections this week, with abortion particularly seeming to help the Democratic side, but you've got some pretty bad polls from the battleground states. I think you've come out already saying that Joe Biden is still the answer, but do you, do you want to explain that to people here? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not a fan of uh, polling uh, a year out from an election. Uh, I think uh, to go back to what we were just talking about, you know, there's a tendency among voters, and particularly I would say among Democratic voters in the United States, to always be looking for, you know, the next cool thing. Who's, who's the, you know, the, the really uh, exciting candidate that we're going to have? And so there's a lot of uh, churn about uh, what we really are going to look for and, and end up with. But I believe Joe Biden will be the nominee. I believe he uh, will be reelected. Uh, I believe that uh, both on the merits of his record, which is quite remarkable given the difficult political environment in our mm -hmm. country, but also uh, because of the alternative. Uh, it still looks likely that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. I know that's hard for people to believe with everything going on, but that seems to be the likely outcome. And so there very well could be a rematch. And I think in that kind of a rematch, you know, people are, are, are kind of moving away from the drama, from, you know, all of the chaos. They want, you know, to just have regular order again. And they voted uh, for people who are standing up for issues that are popular, like the right to uh, have women make their own reproductive decisions, uh, for example. But you had a governor in Kentucky, a deeply red state, a Democratic governor, get reelected. He made abortion uh, a central issue. He made uh, red flag laws so that people who are dangerous don't get guns, which seems like a very sensible position. He made those really central to his campaign, and he won a very big victory. So I, I think that Joe Biden will be the nominee. I think Trump right now will be the nominee, and I think Biden will be reelected. Have vote Democrats and dare to be dull. Um, if, That's right. That's right. It's, it's it's the new cool thing, John. I, you know, just get out there and show your dullness, but get the job done. Be productive and dull. <laughs> and you've been listening to former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton with Bloomberg News Editor in Chief John Micklethwaite at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore. And coming up... A closer look at where the risk really is amid all this inflation and global instability. You're listening to this special edition of Bloomberg Best from the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. And this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini with a special edition of Bloomberg Best from the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore. As we've been talking, dealing with instability is the theme at this year's gathering. And we had a chance to hear about where people perceive the risk actually is. And Bloomberg's Haslinda Ahmed asked Jenny Johnson, president and CEO at Franklin Templeton, and also Nubar Afayan, founder of Flagship Pioneering and co-founder of Moderna, about it. And let's listen in just briefly Ed, to their comments, starting with Johnson's take on the Federal Reserve's decision to stand pat on interest rates for now. I do think the, the Fed was, was right to stand pat. I think that, though, the journey to 2% is going to be a lot more challenging. 
Um, the other challenge that I don't think gets enough, and you're starting to hear about it more, is, you know, even if the Fed is able to slow the economy such that it gets inflation lower, there is this issue of just supply and demand for U.S. Treasuries and, and U.S. debt. I mean, the reality is the U.S. has gone from seven trillion or nine trillion in 2007, 31 trillion. We're going to add two trillion more. You have to have buyers. Now there'll be buyers. The question is, at what price will there be buyers? And then one, how much does that crowd out other investment opportunities? And two, um, you know, does that mean higher for longer? Which I tend to, to feel like that that. That is an issue. So I think along with the inflation, even if the Fed does their job in trying to slow it down, you know, they don't control uh, U.S. spending. And, and that debt, I think, uh, is, is adding a challenge. So things like, I mean, one thing we know for sure is that what we've had of this last, you know, the peace dividend, but basically low interest rates, where were you going to put your money? Well, you put your money, you didn't put it in fixed income because you didn't earn anything. So you put it into equity markets. So, uh, you know, equity markets took off. Well, now all those growth companies that really drove the equity markets and, and same with this year, that those earnings have just gotten a lot more expensive. You know, if you're yielding, if you can earn 5% on cash and you're waiting for future earnings, chances are you're going to have a, a compression of some of those multiples. So uh, I, I think that's a longer story that's going to be harder and harder for the Fed to actually control. Nubar, I mean, for healthcare, for instance, a risky environment and certain environment is a great environment for healthcare. So you should be thriving. So I think what you're going to see in this environment is the appearance of a, a different more a different and new equilibrium state. It's very scary because obviously investors value predictable, profitable growth. There is no predictable, there's hardly any profitable, and there's hardly any growth. And so how do you actually make decisions? You go revert to what you're used to. And I think that's going to be very interesting. And, and the last thing I'll say is in, in biology, in science and nature, these things happen and there's a lot to be gained out of looking at that. And, and the big thing to gain out of it is that Thinking of that change as a matter of risk versus thinking of it as uncertainty, you can't hedge uncertainty because you need signal to be able to do something. In uncertainty, there is no signal. Uncertainty is about unknown probabilities. What you can do is resolve it, which is take some steps, do some experiments, and if it actually resolves and it turns out it's going here, then be the dominant player there. So I'll say those are all the ways in which we see in health, but also in the scientific world, uncertainty is an opportunity Last thing I'll say is that in changing, dramatically changing times, that's when new technologies have a slight crack to actually matter. E-commerce, certainly AI now, many, th the vaccine. So if you think about it, the technologies underlying the, the mRNA vaccines existed for 10 years. Mm. But the moment in which it actually became possible to do this at a, at a global scale actually was as a result of crises. And the question is, what, what opportunities is the climate going to present? What opportunities are these current moments of massive shift going to present? And I think that's where entrepreneurs and innovators have to realize this is not the time to actually retreat. This may be a once-in-a-generation opportunity to have the ability to matter. That was Nubar Afayan, founder of Flagship Pioneering and co-founder of Moderna, and Jenny Johnson, president and CEO, Franklin Templeton. And that was a quick portion of their terrific inside ad with Bloomberg's Haslinda Amen at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Best with voices from the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. This is Bloomberg and stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. <laughs> 